Good morning. Very warm welcome. Just add my welcome. It's great to see you. Um, we're continuing our series side by side today. I just, just for a moment, just as we get into things, have you ever had one of those moments where you, you kind of know that something's right, like it's true, but you're not really sure how? Like, you know it's real. You know the answer is, yeah, okay, I get, I get that's the answer, but I just, if I'm really honest, I don't really get it. I don't really understand it. I don't really know how that's the answer. I know it's the answer because someone smarter than me said it's the answer, or I know it's the answer because the internet told me it's the answer, or I know it's the answer just intuitively. I know it must be right, but I just can't really get it, or I kind of understand it, but I don't really understand it, or I, I know it to be true, but I, I can't really articulate how or why. I just don't get it. I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago on the internet, there was one of those things, you know, like, is it blue, is it white, is it whatever, grey colour, all those things that come around all the time. Well, there was one of those maths puzzles that came, uh, was on the internet a couple of years ago about the missing pound. And it was this story of three friends who, who go to a restaurant and have a, have a meal, and the bill comes for the, for the end of the meal, and the bill is 30 quid. I mean, it's a very cheap restaurant, but there you go. So just keep the maths simple. The bill is exactly 30 pounds. So each of the three friends pays 10 pound each. Right? Later, the waiter realized that actually the bill shouldn't be 30 pounds, it should only be 25 pounds. So to rectify that, he takes five pounds out uh, from the amount to return to the group. Now, on the way back to the table, the waiter realizes that he can't divide the money equally, all right? Not simply, anyway, with his five-pound coins. So as the customers, they don't really know what the total of the, the bill is supposed to be anyway. The waiter decides just to give each of the three friends one pound each and keep two pounds for himself. Now, each guest, I know if you were a waiter, you'd never do that, but that's, that's what he did. Each guest gets one pound back. So, if you're good at maths here, you now realize that each guest has paid nine pounds, bringing the total to 27 pounds. Now, the waiter has kept two pounds for himself. So, 27 plus two is 29. Where's the missing pound? What? Where's it, where's it gone? Where's the missing pound gone? No one got the answer? Okay. <laughs> it's one of those things you think, hang on a minute, it's 20, it's, they have £10 each, so they gave it, there was definitely like nine, one pound. Nine. What? I don't understand. I don't get how this works. So here's, here's the answer, right? The, the pound was never actually missing. It's just basically a trick in a riddle. If you think about it, the group paid £27, and which, of which the waiter kept two. However, the bill was £27, including the two pounds. So if you work it all out, it kind of, easily gets to itself. And some of you are going, okay, I'll take it from you. <laughs> I'll look it up on the thing. Now, the only reason, I'll be honest with you, the only reason I know that is because I looked it up on the internet. I was like, there's a pound missing. Maths is broken. I knew it. I knew it from an early age. As a child, I knew that maths didn't make any sense and it's broken. This proves it. It's not. We know when you add it all together, one pound plus one pound plus one pound is three pounds, plus two pounds is five pounds, plus 25 pounds is 30 pounds. So it's all there, right? Anyway, here's where we get into. Don't let that worry you. Some of you now have lost you entirely. That's it. Game over for the whole sermon. There's a missing pound. Where's the maths? <laughs> Today, we're going to be looking, as we carry on this series, at a bit of scripture or a topic that I know it's right, but I don't really understand how. Or I get it, and I understand it because I've read it in the Bible or I kind of have heard it being talked about and I, I kind of know it's right. I know it must be right, but intuitively I just can't quite feel how it exactly is or I don't fully understand it or I kind of, I get it, but it just feels frustrating or I get it, but it just feels a little bit like a maths riddle that, okay, I know what the answer is, but how you actually get there or 
what? How, what? How, how's that work? If you've got a Bible, look at John 13 for a moment. We're going to just kick around in a couple of verses in John 13 and then through John 17, and we're going to look at one or two things today. Verse 34 of John 13, a new commandment, Jesus says, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, all people are going to know, everybody out there who's not a believer is going to know by your love for one another. Turn over to, verse, uh, to chapter 17 for a moment. Verse 20, Jesus speaking again in his great high priestly, prayer, high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also, as in for believers, but also for those who will believe in me through their, that's our word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. He's talking about him and the Father. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Who? I, I know it's right. I know it's true. I get it. I don't get it. I understand. Just think what's going on in these two little verses we've looked at in John 13 and John 17. Jesus says, the quality and the depth of our relationship, like our relationship believers, those in the church, the quality and the depth of our relationships will display Jesus to a watching world. And as a result of the way that we love one another and relate to one another and live together and share life together, as a result of our relationships and the strength of our relationships, the world may know that God loves them. That's the maths going on here. As a result of how we interact, how we behave, how we love one another, how, how we share life together, how we relate to one another, the world is going to see Jesus and know that God loves them. How does that work? Like how, how, how does this, how does church work together? Well, we're in this series called Side by Side, Growing Together as Disciples and Family Members and Missionaries. Now, these three things, they're not unconnected. They're not kind of three randomly unconnected things. You're a disciple, yep, and you're a family member and you're a missionary. No, no, no. They're, they're all connected, interconnected, and they're interwoven together. And here's the progression. Because you are now following Jesus, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the moment you became a Christian, you automatically became a disciple. You automatically became a follower, a learner of Jesus. And because you are now automatically a disciple, you are now automatically, whether you realized it or not, whether you wanted it or not, whether you liked it or not, you're now added into a family, the family of God. You become a son or a daughter, and therefore you become brothers and sisters with many others. You become a family member, disciple, automatically becoming a family member. And now, because you're part of the family, and this family that we now belong to has a family business, 
We're not selling products, but we have a family business. The business is to make more disciples. Therefore, you're now a missionary too. So you get the progression. You become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, which means you get added into a family, which means you get added into partaking in the family business. You become a missionary. And here's the thing. Critical to our success in the family business Critical to our success in, in helping a broken world know that there's a healer and that there's a savior who loves them and cares enough for them to die on the cross for them, to make a way for them to be connected back and relating back to God and to one another. Critical to all of that is the quality of our family life together. Now, when it comes to understanding church as family and the resulting implications for kind of mission together, it can sometimes feel a little bit like, well, I, am, I know that. We talk about it. I've heard you talk about it. I've heard others talk about it. I've read it in my Bible. I get that church is supposed to be family, but I don't really see how that really works in terms of the world seeing it, and I don't really understand how it actually works. I mean, I come on Sundays, and, and I'm kind of nice to people and smile at people, but beyond that, I don't really see it. I don't really get it, or I find it a bit frustrating because I really do get family, and the church seems nothing like actual family. Last week, if you were in this meeting last week, there was some significant prophetic words that came during worship about God adding people to this family and that word family came again and again and again and there was some prophetic words that came that I felt just felt were really significant about God adding extensions onto the family house onto the father's house that that we as a result of God doing this and this and this in different people's lives and different people stepping in and doing different stuff God is going to add people to this family and we're going to see many people coming to know Jesus it just got referred to at the end of uh, this worship time as well again now, the qual- this, is, this is why this is so important. The quality of our family life together, the extent to which John 13 and John 17 are true of us is cruci- crucially important to seeing that come to f- fruition. And it starts with us understanding and really believing and getting beyond just, yeah, yeah, church, metaphor, family, get that. No, it goes to really understanding that church as family is not just a nice idea, but it's very crucial to our identity and to our success. Now, here's the thing. For some people, I understand that family, understanding family is hard, right? Often because of our own experiences, our own family upbringings, our, the current state of our family or the longings we have for family that never were fulfilled or whatever it might be. Understanding sometimes family, we've, there's, there's so much stuff in family life that can kind of cause mess. Every single one of us, if we stop right now and said, just, just share something of the nature of the mess in your family, most of us would have something to say at some point, even if it was just squabbling with brothers and sisters when we were children. There is a level of mess in family. And if, and if you are sitting there thinking, not in my family, let me tell you, the rest of your family are saying, you're the problem. <laughs> That's just the way it goes. There is no like, oh, we're all sorted, we're all fine. But what we've got to understand is that the moment we're born again, we become, a, we become a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. We're now completely made new and we're completely changed. And whilst the past might impact us and the past might shape us, it does not define us. We're made new. And so part of learning to follow Jesus is learning some new things of what it means to follow Jesus and unlearning some old things of what it really does not mean. And part of that is our understanding of how we work things out in family. Now, there's lots of metaphors 
in the Bible explaining what the church is. It's like a body. It's like this. It's the home of God. It's a temple, all that kind of stuff. But the key, one of the key images is understanding church as the family of God. God is father. Church is family. And now talking about family, it's one of those phrases that's really easy to kind of um, band around and use and uh, use an example, but it's often a lot harder to put it into practice. And yet this is who we are and what we need to prioritize. And truth be told, it's, it would be really easy and much easier to kind of forego this and just say, no, no, church is about meetings, so get here in meetings. I know you're busy people, but if you can just give us 90 minutes on a Sunday and maybe two hours on a Wednesday, that's it. That's all we need. And just get on with your busy worlds. But that, that's just not the picture that we get in Scripture. And this idea of church as family is not just some kind of nice idea. It's rooted in the very heart of God himself. See, God fundamentally is a truly relational God. We see Father, Son, Holy Spirit in kind of eternally coexisting together in this perfect unity, this perfect relationship since time, before time began. We see these intimate expressions of Trinity throughout the New Testament. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. There's just this connection. God is truly relational God. And God's plan has always been to fill the earth through families. God said to the first family in Eden, Adam and Eve, he said that the earth would be filled. Go and multiply. Go this time next year, Genesis 1, 21 and 28, and make sure that there are more of you than there are currently. Go multiply. And then he uses Noah's family to rescue the world from the flood. And then he says to Abraham's family, through your descendants, through your family, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. Family always been part of God's plan to fill the earth. And then we see it into the New Testament. In the church family, those saved at Pentecost, we looked at last week, were added to their number, added to the family. They weren't added to an organization. They were added to a family. And it says they devoted themselves. Everything we looked at last week, devoted themselves to word and to prayer. But they devoted themselves to fellowship, to one another. It was intensely relational. We see it in how Paul understood his role. Paul was an apostle. Planted loads of churches, wrote most of the New Testament. And Paul did not understand himself or view himself as a leader of an organization. He wasn't a network leader. He wasn't a church movement leader. He was a father to a whole load of churches. So the relationship that he had with the church leaders who he wrote to was not boss to employee. It was father to son. And so he didn't view those who, uh, who he planted like in Ephesus or different places like that. He didn't view them as kind of uh, partners or followers. They were like his spiritual children. He didn't have any children. They were his spiritual children. He was their father. He raised up sons, not underlings. That's kind of what we wanted to do in, in church life. We're not trying to raise up different kind of people who will do it like this, do it like that. No, no, no. We're, we're family. Fathers and mothers raise sons and raise daughters. The whole atmosphere of the New Testament is one of family together. Church is family. It's not just an event. It's not just a building or a meeting. If we look through the New Testament, we would struggle to find anyone who went to church. Like that's, the idea of you going to church this week would just be a, kind of a, a very weird thing. No, it would literally not be asked. It would not be a question. Are you going to church this week? And be like, what? What do you mean? It's like if you think about it with me, I've said this kind of stuff before. I don't go to family. 
All right? I don't go to family. Now, I regularly attend events with my family. There is a rhythm in my family life, which means that we do certain things together at certain times. But I don't like, what am I doing today? I'm going to family. That, it's just it's kind of a weird thing. I might go to a family event. There might be a birthday party I go to or some kind of even less bigger deal like go to breakfast downstairs. Or I might go to the sofa to sit there with my kids or I might, like, even though the idea is just ridiculous, right? I don't go to family. I am family. And everything I do flows out of that. And consequently, I love the members of my family. I build up the members of my family. I encourage the members of my family. I get to know the members of my family. There are moments we're all together. There are moments I'm with all the wider ones. There are moments where I wish some of the uncles and stuff weren't there, but they are, hey-ho. And then there are moments where I'm just one-on-one. Just me and my son, or me and my dad, or me and my, yeah. Pray together, do stuff together. I'm family. So is it just a cliche to say that the church should be like family? Is it just a nice thought? I mean, like, does God really expect us to build really closely? I get the actual natural family. I get that. But does God really expect us to build closely with people we're not actually related to? People who are outside of this thing called church, I would definitely not even ever hang around with because I've got nothing in common with them. And God actually expects us. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on a minute. That's just weird, isn't it? Like it's natural to build with our actual family members and it's not that natural to be that close to people who are not. Except that's the point. It's not supposed to be natural. It never has been natural. It's entirely supernatural, which is a very different thing. Back to John 13. We are to love one another. We're supposed to be known for this. Jesus says our love for one another is the very thing that will attract the world. Now that phrase, one another, appears like over a hundred times in the New Testament. Love one another, encourage one another, serve one another, rebuke one another, exhort one another. Just one another, one another, one another, one another, one another, all over the place. These things are a big deal. Now, here's the sobering truth. Jesus, in Luke chapter 6, you can look at it later, verses 32 through 34, makes it clear that known people who are not Christians, people who are not believers, he says they know how to love one another. That's why like, it's not a, just a uniquely Christian thing. Like non-Christians, people who don't know Jesus, don't put their trust in Jesus, love one another and they do it very, very well. Jesus himself said that. The love that he's talking about then is supposed to be something entirely different. And it's supposed to be recognizably different. And it's supposed to mean that people who are not believers go, I know what love is in one sense because I love my family members. But you guys, that's another level. I love people who naturally are close to me. You love people who naturally are nowhere near you. I love people who are naturally like me. You guys seem to love one another even if you're at opposite ends of the spectrum, even if you're completely unlovable, you guys seem to, wow, there's something supernatural going on there. Look at verse 34 of John 13. Just as I loved you, says Jesus, just as I loved you, you are also to love one another. Our king, who allowed himself to be tortured and killed for us, tells us to love one another in the same way. Think of the selfless, like completely selfless love that he displayed. And he says, we're to do the same thing for one another. Wow. We've experienced the greatest, most profound, if you're in Christ today, the greatest, most profound love in the universe. And Jesus says that that profound love should flow out of us. 
Look at 1 John 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might love, live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, God will abide in his in us and his love will be perfected in us wow again and again throughout scripture we just see the importance love one another not just because it's a nice thing to do but not even because ultimately it's the right thing to do but because it flows out of the heart of God into his people and then ultimately out of his people to a watching world that is waiting whether it realizes it or not for the love of a savior John 17 Jesus' prayer was not just that we would get along and avoid church splits. His prayer was that out of the oneness that we know and share and display, we might prove that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the Messiah, that he's the king, that he died on the cross. He said his purpose, the purpose of our unity was that the world might know that the Father sent him and loved the world. The supernatural love and unity then is crucial to the success of our mission. It's that big a deal. I've spent quite a bit of time just laying this foundation. Just want us to get this. It's not just, yeah, we should love each other because we're Christians and that's what Christians do. They're nice people, right? Christians are not nice people. They are sinners redeemed by a gracious God. Now, therefore, saints. Not because they were nice people and Jesus just had, oh, we could do with a few extra good players on the team, bring them in. No, no, no. He took the dead, filthy, rotten sinners that we were and he breathed new life into us and changed us from the inside out. So I'm no longer a sinner. I'm now a saint. It's not a good person graduated to, of course he'd choose me. No, no, no. Of course he wouldn't. But he did. And we've been changed from the inside out. And church unity and supernatural love it's kind of one of those, really, how does that work? It's going to result, if we do that, it's going to result in many people knowing Jesus. How? That is weird maths. It's like two add two equals 100. I don't know how many times you've read through the Bible and thought, that is weird maths. That doesn't make any sense. Like walking around the walls of a city seven times to see the wall come down. You think, why would you do that? And yet that's what God says and that's what happens. Again and again, there's a great big battle to face. What do happen again and again? What do they do? The battle's not yours says God it's mine so just start worshipping you think there's people going to shoot us and fire things at and throw and stab us you want us just to have a worship time you think that doesn't make any sense and yet in the economy and the maths of God it's exactly what is required this is the economy and the maths of God the early church practiced these things what happened daily the Lord added to their number verse uh, Acts chapter 4 we haven't got time to look at it but he says none of them they had everything in common none of them was without was with need that everything in common, that's what happens. That's the result. People save and everybody together, no one has need. Here's the thing. Unity doesn't like that and love like that doesn't come easy. It's hard work. If you think of everything for a moment, just about your natural family, how much it takes to just keep everything together. Ooh. It's easy to talk about loving one another. It's easy to talk about unity, but it's harder to commit to it. And it's harder to count the cost to make it happen. 
But here's the thing, obedience to God, doing what God says, in the way he says it, in the manner he says it, in the timing he says it, often grates against our natural desires. We have like a desire to do this and God says do that. And you go, oh man, if I do that, that means it's going to cost me. I don't want to do it. God, can I do this? And you just bless me. You're good and gracious after all. That ain't the way it works. Like we, we off, being obedient to God and doing the things he says costs us. But here's the thing. Obedience always results in blessing. Psalm 133 verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. Look at verse 3. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. Obedience to God always results in a blessing. Not necessarily the blessing that we desire or think or want or even have expected. But as we obey him, as we do the things he says, in the manner he says them, good things come. Not necessarily material things. Don't get that idea out of your head. Okay, I love everybody and I'll get a bigger house because I can love them a bit more because I'll have a bigger lounge to do it in. That's how it's going to... No, 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 that's not the way the maths works. That's not the way the economy of God works. But we are called to love one another supernaturally. So how do we move towards this sort of unity and supernatural love? (laughs) Well, we need to take some initiative, firstly, and move toward one another. Like each of us taking that level of responsibility and saying, okay, I'm going to step towards other people. God has moved and stepped towards me. Now I'm going to move and step towards other people in his name. God, you see, it always starts with him. Always starts with him. Everything always starts with him. God takes the initiative. Even when Adam and Eve were exiled from Eden, what did God do? He followed them into exile. He always takes the initiative again and again and again. God moved throughout the Old Testament. God moves towards his people. And he perfectly displays this in Jesus who relentlessly, relentlessly pursues his people. Again and again and again, sheep wander off, he goes and finds them. Coins are lost, he goes and finds them. It's that sense of wherever you go, he's going to relentlessly pursue you. So God comes to us, that's grace, we don't deserve it. And what it does is it starts like ripples or cycles of grace throughout the body of Christ. God's come to me, so therefore I go to other people. God's shown grace to me, therefore I show it to other people. God's shown infinite patience with me, therefore I show it to other people. God's shown incredible love and mercy to me, therefore I show it to other people. As the king goes, so do his people. He moves towards us and we move towards each other. He moves towards his friends. He also moves towards his enemies. And so do we. Imagine how that could just completely, utterly transform our church. If each one of us took that pattern, God's moved towards me, I'm going to move towards others. Instead of just talking to the same people, the people that I kind of know, the people I'm comfortable with, the people who are in my little circle of friendship, the people who are very similar to me, whoa, imagine if we treated others, even outside of those immediate circles, in the way that God has treated us. Imagine how loneliness could immediately, well, ultimately, potentially gradually, but imagine how it could be eliminated. Imagine how we could get to a place where nobody would step into a a new community thing feeling, I'm not sure I know anybody, and is anybody going to talk to me today? I don't really know. Imagine how we could banish that. Sounds great, doesn't it? It's easy to imagine, but it's difficult to put in practice. I'll be honest with you, that's not a problem. Because if this was easy, we'd have already done it, and we would just rely on our own strength, and we'd just do it ourselves. But I'll be honest with you, everything that is biblically worthwhile is hard to do, which means we need to lean more into God, which is a very good thing because it's never been about us and our abilities and our strengths, but it's always been about him and his perfect strength. And the Holy Spirit, what's one of his roles? To be our helper. 
If you don't need help in anything you do in your Christian life, you might not necessarily be doing some of the right things. Just want to put it out there. If you think I can do my Christian life without any help from God, without any help from the Holy Spirit, if there's never a moment in my Christian life where I think, I need some help right now, you're probably doing it wrong. If you turn up to family events and you're like, I don't don't need any help, everybody else is praying that they do because you're there. (laughs) There's just something in it. We're not built to be kind of dependent. We're built to be independent, interdependent on one another and totally dependent upon God. So how do we do it? A few things just to finish. First is we need to recognize we need one another. You're in the family and you have a part to play. And even if you feel like you're the uncle on the outside that no one wants to hang around with, you're still part of the family and you still have a part to play. And if you feel like, well, I'm just the awkward one, I'm the answer, you have a part to play. You're in needed. We need one another. We need brothers and sisters. We need mums and dads. We need those who are further ahead of us. We need those who are behind. I need people further ahead of me to still be loving Jesus and, and pursuing him with everything they've got because I need to look at people and think, do you know what? This Christian life is hard, but they can still do it and so can I. So no matter what decade or generation you're in, you are needed. You have got infinite wisdom if you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s that you can hand down to people behind you. And for some of us who are now kind of in our 30s and 40s and things, we've got to recognize we're not the kids anymore. We've actually got some part to play and some role to play. We're not not kind of, well, I just need somebody to input me. We've got whole generations coming behind us. We've got to roll into them as well and share into them as well. We're not children anymore. We need one another. But that means we also need to start with some acknowledgement and recognition that we're not perfect. None of us are, but we are saints. We are saints. This came in and through in our worship. The gospel has changed us. We need to start seeing ourselves as God sees us. And so therefore, God says, I have worth. Therefore, I have worth. God says, I have a part to play. Therefore, I have a part to play. God says that he loves me. Therefore, I'm loved. It doesn't matter whether I think it true or not. The reality is it is. I have infinite worth, not because of what I do or what I can bring, but because of what God says over me. I'm a saint. I'm, I'm part of the family. I have a right to be here, not because of anything I've done, but because of the invitation he has given me. You didn't get in here on your own strength. You got here because of what Jesus has done for you. And if the king invites you to his party, you turn up. And if the king says, join in with the singing, you join in with the singing. And if the king says, I've given you some gifts, I'd love you to use them. Do you know what you do? You use them because the king gave you them as a gift. And it's not arrogant and it's not boastful and it's not, look at me, I'm amazing. No, the king just gave you some stuff for the benefit of the rest of the body. It's kind of disobedient not to use them, right? It's kind of, the king, if the queen, I mean, it kicked off earlier with that first thing. If Prince Harry and, um, I don't even know what she is. She's not a princess, is she? um, His wife, Meghan. (laughs) Meghan. I just think of her from Suits, right? That was the actress in Suits. I was gutted when she got married and she had to leave that show. Anyway, if they invite you round, you're going, right? If the queen invites you, you're going. You're not going, oh, I'm a bit busy. The queen's inviting me to her house, I'm going. The king has invited you to his house. I'm going to be here. So we recognize that we're not perfect, and we make sure we have grace for one another, because we're going to make some mistakes. We need to think the best of one another. 
It's a very, very practical and very, very helpful thing to go. Until I know otherwise, I'm going to assume the absolute best about that person. Until I know for a definite fact in that I've heard it out of their mouth that they've got this issue or that issue with it, I'm going to assume that they meant this and I'm going to think the best of them. We're not perfect. And we all go, yes, 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 until somebody does something that we don't like and then we're like, how dare they? (laughs) Come on, come on. We're not perfect. Grace for one another. So how do we move towards each other? This is so simple, but dead easy, right? And, And to think through, but difficult to act. But this is not some profound... I never knew moment. This is a, oh yeah. We greet one another. Like literally, that's where it starts. We greet one another. 1 Corinthians 16, 20 talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Now, we don't need to kiss each other, but it's about appropriate, contextual, appropriate warmth and affection towards one another. So in some cultures of the world, we would kiss one another. Some of you are from cultures, do that, go for it. All right, just recognize there are some who are really not, and, if, and they back off like that. It's not from you, it's just we, we, we can shake hands, all right, that's fine. But it's that level, there should be a level of appropriate familial warmth because we're family. We greet one another. Greetings is not from some kind of bygone era, they're skills that imitate the Lord. He greets us, we greet others. He comes towards us, we go towards others. He shows affection and warmth to us, we show affection and warmth towards others. Some of us, our personality is such that we find that really difficult. That's why we need one another. I need people who are going to give me a hug because I'm not naturally a huggy person. I need people who are going to display and express warmth and and love to me because there is part of me that is just like, "Ah, just naturally I'm not so there. Now, we've got to be appropriate and understand and recognize that different experiences, different people, different personalities. But the point is, again and again, there's a warmth towards one another. And you can express a whole load of warmth in just the shake of a hand. Right, so it's not just about the physical, it's just the attitude, the affection that we have. Second thing is we engage then in thoughtful and meaningful conversation. Ones that go below the surface, you're right? Yep, good. Next one, done my job. You're right? Yep, good. I, I'm good. How many people do you talk to? About 48. It's amazing. <laughs> Got my little tick box and everything. No one's lonely now. <laughs> Why, what did you say to them? I said, Are you all right? Oh, yeah, nailed it. No one's lonely. <laughs> Now, obviously, in every single moment, every context is not necessarily we're going to go dive straight into. So tell me how you're really feeling. Like, but there's something about we greet one another with affection and warmth, and then we look towards engaging with one another and building conversation. If it feels awkward, that's okay. Some people are naturals at this. Most of us are not. So we pray that we're going to share in in the heart and the warmth of God, and we're going to learn to play our part in building family, and we learn from one another. And we move towards one another. And we pray with them if they're up for it. And we pray definitely for them. Don't do that. I'll pray for you. And then don't. Maybe just do it. Can I pray for you real quick now? I know this might feel awkward and weird, but it shouldn't. We're the body of Christ. We're family together. And then we follow up. Short conversations become longer ones. And conversations become relationships and become friendships and they, and they grow, they deepen beyond the superficial. And this is hard, especially for men. I was chatting to someone this week about this and they said, I think most men would rather hear a sermon on the terrifying consequences of sin, the wrath of God and eternal judgment in the lake of fire than they would like to hear that they need to make friends with people. <laughs> we'll do that another time just for you guys. But <laughs> starts with a step. A first step towards people, saying hello for the first time. It has a next step, moving beyond the 
right? And it goes to an ongoing step of building friendship and relationship with people. It'd be a bit weird if right now I said, we're going to finish, see you next week. So we're going to finish now. We're going to take communion together and we're going to step towards one another.